Welcome to the Dogwood Podcast, a presentation of Dogwood Church. For more information, visit www.dogwoodchurch.org. Join us now as Pastor Keith Moore shares today's message. Uh, the crucifixion of Christ, Holy Week, Good Friday, the resurrection, Easter. Um, it, just in our country in the West, millions and millions and millions of us are gathering in this hour uh, to remember Christ's death on the cross. And it looks like we would be a little clearer on what it means. But, it's, um, but we're not. We're not clear. And so I want us to get really, really clear once again uh, on the cross of Christ and what it means for you and me. Uh, it's been said that the, the cross of Christ is simple enough that children can understand it and deep enough that theologians can swim in it all their lives and never touch the bottom. I wrote to a friend of mine last Easter, and uh, I, just a quick line, I said, I've been doing this 41 years, and I'm still trying to comprehend the gospel. It's just so big, it's so magnificent. So in my journey uh, of, of trying to understand it and communicate it, I'm always reading uh, who's written about it. And back in the 90s, I came across a sermon written by Pastor Bill Hybels. It's the clearest thing I've ever seen. I can't do any better than he did, so I'm delivering his sermon this morning. Just so you know, you can write Bill for me and say thanks, because he did really good. I'm just going to translate it into Southern, and uh, rather than Midwestern, and here we go. Pray with me. So Lord, I pray now that you would help us to put aside the things that clamor for our attention other than you. And I pray that you would open our eyes, that we may see wonderful things from your word. Open our minds, that we may understand the scriptures, understand the gospel, understand your cross, and that you would unlock our spirits, that part of our personality that most directly relates to you, that we would, uh, that we would eagerly respond to you with our lives. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, to get us headed in the right direction, I want to um, uh, clarify two ideas, two concepts uh, that will help us here. And the first one is the word, the concept of substitution, substitution. Now, this is a concept that we're all familiar uh, with. We use it a lot in our culture. We especially use it in uh, athletics. Uh, substitution can be defined as, as one taking the place of of another. For many of us, our high school athletic career, that was the position we played. Substitute. We substitute one taking the place of another. We understand this easily, don't we? We understand substitution. One taking the place of another. Second concept, write down this word, is the concept atonement. Atonement. And let me illustrate it this way. Think about an, think about a, an unpunished crime. Think about an unpunished crime and the desire for appropriate payment to be made uh, for that crime. When a, when a significant crime is committed uh, against an individual or a family, or, or it's maybe even more public in the culture, when justice is delayed, uh, we become frustrated. We become irritated. We may even become livid because... We want justice to be served. Why? Society just can't move on until appropriate payment has been made 
for a crime. We just can't move past it. Individuals, we just can't move on. We just can't get past it until appropriate payment has been made for uh, a, a crime. Now, take that idea, take that idea, appropriate payment, and then put the equal sign out beside it and write in the word atonement. Appropriate payment and the term atonement mean the same thing. Making appropriate payment. And so atonement is satisfying the demands of justice when a crime has been committed. Jot that down. Great definition. Atonement is satisfying the demands of justice when a crime has been committed. Now, we all intuitively uh, carry an understanding of that. It's that deep sense of fairness that we have. That is from the time we can form words, we start saying that's not fair, don't we? That's not fair. We, we have this sense of justice as part of being made in the image of God because our God is a perfectly just God. And uh, He desires for justice and justice to be served. We, we naturally understand that ourselves. Now put these two together, substitution and atonement, and you have substitutionary atonement. Here's a good definition. It's defined as someone taking the place of someone else and satisfying the demands of society or of justice when a crime has been committed. Someone taking the place of someone else, satisfying the demands of justice uh, when a crime has been committed. Now, let, let's, let's go back and do a sprint through the Bible to understand God's idea and how this pertains to the question, What's the point of the cross? What's the meaning of the cross of Christ? Why was Jesus crucified? What does it have to do with you? And what does it have to do with me? Some of you are outsiders trying to understand the Christian faith. I'm going to yank all the curtains back and down so that you can see as clearly as possible. For those of you who are believers, let's be sure that you get, get this down really, really clear because across this next week, uh, as you gather with friends and family, especially next weekend, you may have the opportunity to cut through the fog of people you know, people you love, people who uh, you like, who've just been unclear about Christ all their lives. So get this down. Ready? Here we go. Let's go all the way back to the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, and turn to chapter 3. Now we know there that God created uh, the world and the pinnacle of His creation was mankind, Adam and Eve. And He loved them dearly. And He came to Adam and he came to Eve and he told them, I'm going to, I have breathed life into your bodies. I've breathed life into you. And you're going to have a wonderful existence here in my creation and in fellowship with me. But, and he gave them a warning. He said, but if you turn away from me, disobey me, sin against me, shake your fist in my face and intentionally go your way instead of my way, all of this great life I've given you is going to come to a screeching halt. You're going to die. It'll bring death. It'll bring death. Well, many of you know the story. You know that Adam and Eve, under the influence of the evil one, disobeyed God, did precisely what He said not to do, the only thing that He prohibited. And... So then all of heaven and all of creation holds its breath. Is God really going to do what He said He's going to do? Is He going to strike them dead, physically dead, 
on the spot? Or is he kind of like my grandfather who just says, oh, nobody's perfect, and kind of wink and walk away? Well, he doesn't strike them dead physically, but he doesn't wink and walk away either, does he? Now, if you, you read on there in chapter 3, the first thing he does is he explains, he clarifies for them very, very carefully how now the entire universe is going to be twisted, infected, sin-tainted. And it's going to cause all kinds of problems. Human, human labor is going to be affected. It's going to be much more difficult. Childbearing is going to be, become painful. Human relationships are going to get all crossways between men and women because of ego and power plays and manipulation. And human bodies are, growing, are going to now grow old and eventually die. He got really clear. So he said there's going to be... Death enters the world. What he said was true. They died to the old goodness. They died to the relationship with God. They, everything was ruined at that point. And God explains that people who continue in ongoing patterns, habitual patterns of sin and disobedience, they will pay. They will make appropriate payment for their sins, their crimes against God and His holiness. They will atone for their sins in this life and throughout eternity. But at the end of the explanation, God does something that we read in Genesis chapter 3, somewhere down around verse 20, 21, 22. I can't remember exactly. God does something that had, must have been shocking to Adam and Eve who were ashamed. They were guilt-filled. They were kind of cowering in their shame and guilt before God. The text says here that God covered their shame and nakedness with the skin of an animal. Now, we just we don't think much about that. We tend to just read right on past that thing. Well, he's just there they didn't have clothing and they were aware of it, and so he just covered them up. No, 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 back up, back up, back up to that verse. Underline that in your Bible. Circle that in your Bible. If you've got an electronic copy, highlight that passage. You understand, this is the first ever death. Ever. Ever. No one had ever seen death before. And you can imagine how horrified they were. Most people, And I think this is the first glimpse at the arrangement that God was making to provide sinners a way out an alternative way of having their sins atoned for. First glimpse at it. And, and the thought of Adam and Eve atoning for their own sin bothered God. It broke God's heart. He couldn't bear the thought of them atoning for their own sin. And so God, all the way back, He takes an animal, an innocent animal, uh, just hanging around in the garden, and He kills it. Now, I don't, we Americans have insulated ourselves, most of us, from uh, the death of animals and how we get our food. Right? Anybody here work in a slaughterhouse? Anybody work in a chicken house? How many, how many grew up on the farm and you ate what you raised? Let me see those hands. About five of us. See, we, just imagine when I was a, a sophomore in college, my biology class was taken on a tour of Duffy's Meat Processing Plant in Carrollton. I've had a hard time eating ham 
ever since. I mean, we got the whole deal. We we marched in with the hogs. I mean, right along the trough, and we got the, the execution and the slitting of the throats and the skinning and the blood everywhere. And um, it, you know, it's a little shocking. And we're kind of used to death. I mean, we we make death and destruction our entertainment, don't we? Don't we? Video games, movies, you know, we're kind of numb to it. Imagine the horror, the shock that Adam and Eve had as they saw God take that animal and it screech and moan and the death throes and finally the stillness of death. And then God skinning that animal and taking those skins and He placed the skin over Adam and Eve as if to say, An innocent third party must atone for your sin to cover it. There's the picture. An innocent third party, substitutionary atonement. It's kind of a sneak preview. Well, later on, we read the story uh, of the Exodus and Passover. And you'll remember that the Israelis uh, spent 400 years in Egypt, most of those years enslaved by the Egyptians, and it had turned into one big sinful, colossal, sinful mess. Uh, the, the Israelis had become faithless people. They had given up on God, were bitter against God. They didn't think God was listening. They didn't, and, and, they, and the Egyptians were sinning against them by slowly working them to death, and the Israelis were sinning back against uh, the Egyptians, and finally it pushes God to His limit, His breaking point. Numbers 14, verse 18 says this, The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion, yet He does not leave the guilty unpunished. You see, God is slow to anger, but if you push Him long enough, you can get Him there. Because He is also lo- he's loving, He's also righteous. So God announces to all the Israelis and all of the Egyptians that He's going to bring judgment on this sinful mess. He's going to bring it to bear on everyone for their sin. And He announces that on a specified evening, the angel of death is going to pass through the land, circulate through the land on that given night, and take the life of every firstborn child in every household in the land. Because He's saying the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. The the natural consequences that are set in motion by human sin is death. Here's a great picture. He said the wages of sin is death. But then God adds almost as a postscript, I offer one option. I'm going to offer one option. I will make one provision for any interested party, any interested uh, party, uh, anyone who locates a male lamb from their own herd, a, a, a prize of the herd, unblemished lamb, slaughters that lamb, takes some of the blood and sprinkles it over the doorpost of the house. If you will do that on that night, the angel of death will pass over that home and the eldest child will be spared. God says, that's my arrangement. That's an option I'm offering for anyone who would take advantage of it. You can, and, and so he said, the option is yours. Well, what happened? Those of you who know the story in the book of Exodus know that most people just blew it off. They said, ah, oh, we're not sure there is a God anyway. All the Egyptians disregarded this. Some of the Israelis 
disregarded. You say, I don't think he's that kind of God. I don't think God ever gets pushed to the point where he brings judgment. But there were a few people who decided otherwise, and they said, you know, as I think deeply and seriously about God, I think God is, is loving and holy and just. And so I think from time to time He'll bring judgment or He's not holy and just. So they decided to go out and get a lamb. Well, we read that the next day every household in the land that had offered up the innocent lamb sprinkled the blood on the doorframe of, of the front of the house. They received suspended judgment. But the households that did not offer up the lamb paid with the life of the firstborn child. So, but there again, do you see the idea? Substitutionary atonement in the story of Exodus, an innocent third-party lamb takes the hit, pays the penalty for the wrongdoing that was committed by others, and the guilty parties go free. See it? Okay, there it is again. Then, later on in the Old Testament, we come to the book of Leviticus. How many of you Christians here who start out with one of your New Year's resolutions, I'm going to read the Bible through this year, you just bomb out in Leviticus. Anybody, you get to Leviticus and it's all over. Yep, yep, I've done that too. Well, in Leviticus, the value there is God goes into great detail about the sacrificial system that is part of uh, the Israelis' worship of God, the way to go about it. And, and it is so detailed and so massive and so extensive to communicate to us, sin is a big problem. It's a big problem. And it requires an, in, an incredible solution. Well, we see in the Leviticus the sacrificial system, and it also foreshadows the idea of substitutionary atonement. Whenever a person sinned, they would bring an animal sacrifice to the priest and, and that innocent animal would be slain and only after the death of the lamb would the priest give the guilty sinner the assurance that her or his sin had been atoned for and that they could go free. And then about 750 to 800 years before Jesus was born, that magnificent prophet of God, Isaiah, said and penned some words that shocked the nation of Israel. Because he, he said something that made it sound like that one day God was going to send some kind of human sacrifice that would take away the sin of the world once and for all, that would stop the need for the ongoing animal sacrifice. And he said it in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. And people just weren't sure quite how to handle that prophecy. But then later on, Centuries later, Jesus was born. And He was born amidst all of the miraculous uh, circumstances surrounding His, uh, his birth. And, and He grows up and there are all these indications that He is God the Son, God's Son, Son of God, God come in the flesh. 
Fullness of God in helpless babe, as we sang just a few moments ago in that great hymn, In Christ Alone. He was born, and then when he was about 30 years old, one day he went out into the countryside where that kind of odd prophetic minister, John the Baptist, was preaching repentance, and large crowds were gathering out by the Jordan River and hearing him and repenting and being baptized. And he stood on the fringe of the crowd, and as he stood on the fringe of the crowd, John the Baptist saw him, and he pointed to him, and he said, Look! Well, the King James guy says, he says, Behold! That sounds better than look, doesn't it? Look! Behold! Yeah. Behold! There's the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. He said, He's the one. He's the one. He's the one that Isaiah prophesied 750 to 800 years ago. He's the one we've been looking for. He, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then Jesus began His public ministry, His teaching ministry, and people were just flocking to Him by the thousands. And He would give all this magnificent teaching on the kingdom of God and morality and ethics and how to, how to know God and what God was about to do and the reality of who He was. And then He would always wrap up His talk frequently by saying something like this, but you need to understand, pretty soon I must go to Jerusalem and there I will be rejected by my own people. I will be pounded to a cross and die. And people just couldn't couldn't take it in. They, 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 they didn't want that to be true. But sure enough, after living a sinless life, Jesus went to Jerusalem. He was arrested on false charges, convicted falsely, beaten and battered. And then all the saints and all the angels in heaven looked on in horror as Jesus was nailed to a cross outside of Jerusalem. Can you imagine what was going on in heaven as the Lord Jesus, the innocent, holy, majestic second person of the Trinity slowly bleeds to death in front of a group of gawkers who instead of bowing down in honor and worship for what He was doing were mocking Him and gambling for His clothing. They were saying, they were saying this just doesn't seem right. This does not seem right. The price seems too high. Guilty sinners don't deserve a substitute like the one God's providing. They ought to pay for their own sins. And you know what? They should, shouldn't they? Or let me say it. Maybe I should say we should, shouldn't we? I should. I should pay for my own sins because I'm the one responsible. You're the one responsible. They were right. But you know, a holy and just God, a holy and just God also has this thing about you. He thinks about you all the time. And every time He thinks about you, the Bible, He says in His own word, the Bible, that His heart is moved with love and compassion toward you, even while you're still sinners, even while we were still sinners. And, uh, and so the Bible says, God so loved the world that even though He knew we ought to pay for our own sins, He sent His only begotten Son in our place to pay the penalty, to make substitutionary atonement for us. Now, do you see this is the core idea of the Christian faith? This is Christianity. If somebody asks you, 
What is Christianity? It's this. It is Jesus taking our place, making appropriate payment for our sin so that we can go scot-free. Guilty parties can go free. It is the core idea of Christianity. Jesus taking your place and mine, satisfying the demands of justice so guilty parties like you and me can go free. What, a, what an idea. What an amazing, what an amazing truth. Now I hear this frequently. You hear, it on the, you hear it on television, you hear it in the movies, you hear it in the newspapers, you hear it at the, in the coffee shop. Well, I, I think you know, all religions have their value, and they do have some value. But I hear them say, all religions, all the great religions basically teach the same things. Write this down. No, they don't. No, no, they don't. They don't. Christianity is the only faith that is based on the idea of substitutionary atonement. It is the only religion in the world whose core idea is based on this idea where guilty sinners go free on the merits of the provision of God provided in Jesus, His Son, who pays the price on our behalf. Every other religious system I've studied in the world sets up some kind of performance standard, expectation, and then tells you that you don't measure up, you don't measure up, and then puts you on a plan so that if you try hard enough and give enough money and do enough of the right things and live the right way, you might raise your status this high or this high in this life and maybe come back again and try to ramp it up a little more and maybe try to ramp it up a little more, but you never know how you're doing. Only Christianity says we can never measure up. Help, 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 help. We need an out, we need outside help. And God provided that in Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing. Now, the Bible also says that there is a day of judgment. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, It is appointed to a man once to die, and then the judgment. What's going to happen when I die? Well, I'm pretty soon, as soon as you open your eyes, you're going to be in the brilliant blazing holiness of God, His presence. And, and, and the debate there, the question there is not going to be who's a sinner and who's not. That's not going to be the question because it's going to be evident five seconds in God's presence and you're going to know, mm, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. You, 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 will, there, you won't be comparing yourself to your classmates any longer. Well, I'm better than they are. I'm better than those people up there at the church. Well, you probably are, but not God. Not God. That's not, that's, that's not going to be the question. That's already answered. There is going to be a question, and it is this. Who does the atoning for your sin? Because sin must be atoned for. Who, who does the atoning? That is the question. Who pays the penalty. And the Bible says that between right now and the judgment day, we must answer that question. This is the window. This is the opportunity that God's giving to decide who's going to atone for my sin, me or the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you going to take the hit? Are you going to pay the price? If you do, you will do the atoning and you'll do it forever, separated from God in eternity in a place called Hell, it's your choice. But there has been another option made available to you. It is the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ 
on the cross. Jesus, out of love, paying the penalty, saying, I'll do it. And then you as a guilty party going free on the merits of Jesus being forgiven and adopted as a child of God and uh, into God's family, blessed in love and taken to heaven forever. So take a look on the backside of your program at your Dogwood Notes. You'll see a statement down there that says, I understand that the basis for all forgiveness is the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. Jesus Christ willingly shouldering the weight of my wrongdoing so that I could be set free. Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to write in your name under by that first blank where it says, my name, and under where it says, I understand the core idea of substitutionary atonement. I get it right in your name. But if you don't get it, um, don't do anything yet. But if you do get it, if you understand, some of you might just have gotten it in the last 30 minutes or so. Some of you got it a long time ago. But what I'd like for you to do is, is write in your name and then write in when and where you were that you understood it for the first time. When was it? And where were you when you understood this, this gospel, this Christian message for the very first time? When was it? Well, I put my name in there and I, and I wrote in when was May 1961. I was almost nine years old, almost nine years old. I'd been raised in the church. I'd been hearing this and it clicked finally. I got it. And uh, I was in a worship service in the First Baptist Church of Bremen, Georgia. So I wrote in my name, May 1961, First Baptist Church, Bremen, Georgia. If you got it, write something in. But if you didn't get it, you don't get it yet, don't sign anything. Uh, you might say, I got it right now. You know, 60 seconds ago. Good. Well, write your name. I understand it. It was clear as a bell. Dogwood Church, April the 13th, 2014. Write that in. Now, there's a second part of this that's critical. The Bible says it is possible that you understand the basis of Christianity, this basis for all forgiveness, and still wind up having to atone for your own sin in hell forever because understanding is not enough. Understanding it is not enough. You and I have to, in humility and honesty, with a repentant spirit, say, not only do I understand it, but I admit that I need it, that I am a sinful person uh, in need of a Savior, I, that I will have to atone for my own sin, and I believe it, and I reach out for you, Jesus, and the salvation that you provided. I am asking you to apply to me personally what you accomplished when you died on the cross in my place, uh, paid my penalty, be my substitute, I give myself to you. For the Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 12, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. We've got to take action, place our faith in Him. Romans ten thirteen says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We've got to call on His name. I need you. Not only do I understand you, I need you. I'm, I'm giving myself to you best as I can and as much as I understand. So the second thing I'm going to ask you to do is right in there where it says, when and where I asked for Jesus to substitute for me personally. Write that in. Now for me, I wrote in May 1961, First Baptist Church, Freeman, Georgia. For about 15 seconds after I understood it, I said, I want it. I need you. I, I took action. 
I took action. A few weeks ago, I told you that coming to Christ saved my life. The church saved my life because in that church, I met Christ as a boy. When that took place in May of 1961, it saved my life. It changed my everything changed. My life changed. My eternity changed. I am your pastor today because of what happened in May of 1961 in that church when Jesus met me and forgave me and adopted me as his child. He saved my life. He saved my eternity. And he'll do the same for you. That's where I got it. No, so write it in. Where were you and when was it that you took this step of faith? Now, some of you are going, uh oh, I don't know. I'm not sure. Well, the great news is you can get squared away right now. You can be sure and ask for Him and His salvation right now if you're unsure. Some of you know you've never done that. Now's the time to do so. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. And if you're ready, just write in your name and say this. Dear Lord Jesus, I ask you to apply your atoning work on the cross to me in my life. I turn from my sin and self-control. I need you and I need your forgiveness. I need you and I want your salvation. And so I reach out to you by faith do this for me, Lord. To the best of my understanding, I give my life and eternity to You to follow You. As we continue, for some of you, this is all hitting you way too fast and you're saying, wow, I, my head's kind of spinning. I'm just starting to grasp this for the very first time and, and I'm not ready to take that step of faith. I'm not sure I understand fully. That's okay. You just keep coming back. You keep seeking. Don't put it on the back burner. Talk to us. Keep coming. And then you'll be ready. As soon as you understand it, commit your life to Christ. Now, for those of you who prayed to receive Christ for the very first time, or you made certain today, on your communication card, there's a side that says, My next step today is. On that statement, John, check that statement that says, my next step today is I'm becoming a follower of Christ. That means I asked Jesus to substitute for me personally. I committed my heart and life to Christ. I did it today. I'm becoming a follower of Jesus. Check that statement. If you have done so, your next step is to go public with your faith by being baptized. You can do so next Sunday, the next Saturday or Sunday in Easter weekend services. Check that statement. That's the way Jesus designed in His Word for us to celebrate our coming to faith in Him. We'll help you do that. For others of you, your next step is to identify with His family. This afternoon, right after this service, I'm teaching the, the Belong Seminar. That's called Discovering Dogwood Membership. At the church office at the other end of the parking lot, we'll feed you lunch Give, give us about two hours. I'm going to explain the whole thing. He said, well, I didn't sign up. Well, just come anyway. We can, we'll fit you in. Just come on. We'd like for you to take a look. Pray with me. Lord, I want to thank you that you made a way for us.
it's sobering, Lord, for me to meditate on the fact that it was my sin that nailed you to the cross. That it was our sin that caused you to give yourself in our behalf. When you were on that cross, we were with you. We were there. We give you thanks for your great sacrifice, Lord Jesus. Thank you for listening to this week's message. For more information about Dogwood Church, visit www.dogwoodchurch.org.